the story of Naaman uh, that we're going through uh, this morning. And part of the context you need to understand in in the story of Naaman is that uh, these uh, two uh, tribes were sworn enemies. There was a huge amount of hatred between the Israelites and the Syrians. They were at war with each other almost uh, constantly. And the Syrians uh, always had the upper hand over the Israelites, um, which is what makes it so surprising that Naaman, the commander of the army of the Syrians, who had such the upper hand in this um, bitter feud, would actually go to Israel, who were the lesser, the smaller, the weaker, that he would go from Syria to Israel to get help. That's the big surprise in the story. And and that's what happens in this story, that, that Naaman, the rich and the powerful, goes to Israel, the weak and the, um, the, the lesser, to find help. And so for people who attend church in the most expensive postcode in WA, uh, it's worth asking the question, what brings a Naaman, what brings a highly successful person, what brings a highly unlikely person What brings that type of person to start seeking the God of the Bible? That's what we're going to look at this morning. Firstly, why people seek. Secondly, how people find. And thirdly, why people can seek and find. So firstly, why people seek. Have a look at verse 1. Naaman. The commander of the army of the king of Aram was a great man and in high favor with his master, that of course being the king, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man, though a mighty warrior, suffered from leprosy. In other words, this guy is the captain of the firsts, he's the top of the class. All the girls are pining for him. He drives a BMW. And on top of it all, don't you just hate it, he's a really nice guy. So how does someone like that start showing any interest in the God of the Bible, the God of the Israelites? Proverbs chapter 18, verse 11 says, The wealth of the rich is their fortified city, They imagine it a wall too high to scale. In other words, it doesn't matter what kind of designer life you've been able to build, the the good grades, the beach body, and the big bank account, something will always come along and burst your bubble. And in the case of Naaman, what was it? Leprosy. What this means is that at the end of the day, no amount of wealth, no amount of connections, no amount of power or success can deliver you from disaster. So the first thing that needs to happen for people like Naaman to turn to the God of the Bible is that they need to come to realize that self-sufficiency is an illusion. Self-sufficiency is a lie. They imagine it all too high to scale. Self-sufficiency is an illusion. But the next thing the namers of this world need to realize is that the world can't help you. 
I want you to notice all of the resources that Naaman put and had at his disposal to deal with this problem of leprosy. It's in verse 1 and and verse 5 in particular. Firstly, he had connections to the right people. The king and his whole court, he was connected. Secondly, he had a lot of money being a great man and being connected with the king and his court. There's no doubt given all the success that he brought his king, that he was extremely wealthy. And thirdly, he had power and prestige. It says that he was a mighty warrior. I almost picture Putin and his cronies, where where all the kingdom's power, all the kingdom's prestige, all the kingdom's wealth is just concentrated Right at the very top. You think of a vast kingdom where all the wealth and all the power is concentrated at the top. And at the top of this kingdom, you've got the king. And next to him, you've got Naaman, the commander of his army. And so what does Naaman do when he finds out that there might be help in Israel for his leprosy? Well, he does the obvious thing that any of us would do. He goes to the top. He goes to the king. Have a look at halfway through verse 5. Naaman went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of garments. He brought the letter because the king of Aram gave him a letter. These are his connections at work. He brought the letter to the king of Israel. So, so what's he doing here? He's, he's bringing all of his resources to bear on this problem that he has. All of his connections, he has a letter from the king. All of his wealth, look at the gifts uh, that he brings to the king. And actually, he comes with his power and prowess. If you look down in verse 13, we learn that he was expecting them to um, give him some great deed that he would have to do. Have a look in verse 13. The servants say, Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? So this is a mighty man. Think SAS, top troop. He's coming thinking that they'll ask him to do some great feat, use his power and prowess that he's been able to use. Do do you see what he's doing? All of his connections, all his money, all his power, all these things that didn't work in Syria, he's hoping that they will work in Israel. But when he gets there in verse 7, it says, When the king of Israel read the letter from the king of Aram, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to give death or life? That this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Part of what's going on here is that where Naaman comes from, back in Syria... Religion is just an extension of cultural and political power. In other words, the temples and the priests and the entire religious establishment, they were employed by the king to establish unity and harmony in his kingdom. The the, the religious establishment was just another arm of the state. And so the priests and the prophets, they were just puppets of the king. And so under these arrangements, you could essentially buy your blessings from God, which meant that the most talented, the most moral, the most well-resourced, the most devout and the most powerful would find their way to the top because they ended up being the most blessed and therefore the highest up the ladder of success. And so that's why Naaman goes straight to the top. 
Because surely God is the one at work with those people at the top. And so the reason, though, that the king tears his clothes is because he's saying, how God doesn't work like that. You've come to the one place in the world where the prophets and the priests don't work for the king. You've come to the one place in the world where the blessings can't be bought and that the, the priests and prophets are not in the king's pocket. You've come to the one place where the priests and prophets serve the true and the living God and therefore they're not on a string. So what all this means and what we all need to learn and what Naaman needs to learn is that the thing that he so desperately needs, the world can't give. Not even the most powerful and the wealthiest and the most successful Despite all his money, all his power, all of his connections, he needs something that's out of this world. Something that money can't buy. There's a book by Becky Pippett called Hope Has Its Reasons, and she tells the story of taking a psychology class with a professor at Harvard. And he tells this story about a case, a guy who's had his life ruined because of resentment towards his mum. The professor gives all this amazing insight into how this man's bitterness towards his mum has poisoned his parenting, twisted his marriage and damaged his career. And the professor gives all this penetrating insight until one of the students puts up his hands and says, how do you actually treat a case like that? How do you help? And all he could say was, well, you need to help this guy see what he's doing and you need to make it conscious so that he can mitigate against all these bad effects. So Becky, who was in the class, put her hand up and said, okay, that's how you diagnose the problem, but how do you actually solve it? Wouldn't it help a whole lot if you were able to help this guy forgive his mum and be set free from all the resentment and bitterness? But the professor immediately pushed back on the ability of science and psychology to deal with an issue like forgiveness. And at the end, this is a Harvard professor, he said, if you're looking for a forgiving heart, you're in the wrong department. It's probably all too rare these days for a professor in any field, let alone a prestigious university, to be so frank about the limitations of their particular field. But see, that's exactly what the king of Israel is doing in this story. Am I a God that I can heal of leprosy? Don't we see this play out in politics and culture? We just throw more money at it and we'll fix it. We think that we do have the answers and the king of Israel is very clear that we don't. Only the God of the universe can fix a problem like this. So do you see it so far? The reason why somebody begins to seek the God of this world is firstly they see the lie of self-sufficiency and ultimately they see that the world can't help, hasn't got the solutions. And so that leads us to how people find, 
how people find. That, that's why people seek. What about how people find? That happens when you shift from thinking that you can earn the blessings of God through your prowess, through your hard work and through all your efforts, and you start learning how to trust and rest in God's free grace. And this brings us to the very heart of the message today. Have a look at verse 10. The first thing that Elisha does with Naaman, who arrives in all his pomp and ceremony, chariots and horses, what does Naaman do? Uh, Sorry, Elisha do? He doesn't even come out to meet him. Can you imagine, like, you know, that the commander of the army, a king or a queen, rocking up at your door for help, and you don't even come out to meet them? What a terrible insult. He he just sends out a servant, this great and mighty man at the door, and Elisha doesn't even answer. So from the very outset, the message is clear. God's blessing is not for the powerful. God's blessing is for the humble. There's a lesson that Naaman needs to learn, but he hasn't learned it yet because it continues. Have a look at what Naaman does when Elisha tells him what to do, go down to the Jordan. Have a look at verse 11. But Naaman became angry and went away. Why is he angry? Have a look, it continues. I thought that for me he would surely come out, stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and would wave his hand over the spot And cure the leprosy. You see, the reason that Elisha doesn't come out to greet Naaman is that he doesn't want Naaman to think that God brings blessing on the basis of his pedigree or his pride. And now the reason why Elisha doesn't come out and wave his hand like a magic wand is because he doesn't want Naaman to think that God will use Elisha on the basis of his prestige or pride. Now it's clear from what Naaman's servants say in verse 13 that Naaman wanted Elijah, Elisha, Naaman wanted Elisha to tell Naaman to go and do something great. Something amazing, like he's done in Syria, right? Somebody that no one else could do. You know, like um, in so many stories where the hero has to go through forest and fire, through snowstorms and sea to find the solution and, and, and bring resolution so that everyone lives happily ever after. You know the stories like that? that that's what Naaman wants Elisha to say. And you know what? That's actually deeply embedded in all of us. In our heart of hearts, we think to ourselves things like this. I didn't get to buy my own house in Cottesloe by sitting on my hands and doing nothing all day. No, I worked hard to get this. I I worked hard to get my position in life. Or or we think to ourselves things like this. I didn't become a pastor in the church uh, because when I applied for university, I didn't get any of my seven preferences and I had no other choice. That's not how I became a pastor. I didn't move to Cottesloe to be a pastor because I utterly failed and burned out in a large church in Melbourne. That's not how I got here. 
I didn't become the senior pastor of St. Philip's in Cottesloe because for two years the nomination committee searched and searched and searched to find someone, anyone, except for me. Until they just gave up and said, okay, I guess we'll deal with you. That's not how I got here. I got here because I'm the best of the best. The creme de la creme. They searched the world and at the top of the list came Kieran. That's how I got here. The reason why Naaman is so angry and so outraged when Elisha tells him to go dip in the Jordan River seven times is because he's saying anyone can do that. Anyone can wash. Any dropout, any failure, any weakling, any loser, anyone can do that. Are you saying that I'm just like them? He's outraged. He's furious. He's fuming. And in Romans 3 verse 23, the Apostle Paul says, there is no difference. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. I'm sorry, Naaman, the dropout, the failure, the weakling, the loser, the commander of the king's army, there is no difference. Because salvation is received by grace. It's not achieved. It's received. You know, some people think this idea of free grace is too easy. It's not too easy. It's too hard. It's deeply wounding to our pride. That's why people aren't doing it. It's the hardest thing in the world. It's too scary. It's too humbling. It's too insulting. It's too wonderful to let ourselves believe in it. That's why someone once said, if you want to become a Christian, all you need is need. All you need is nothing, and very few people have that. That's why Naaman is so furious and so outraged. He's insulted. He's saying it's too easy, but the servants say, no, it's actually too hard. This is the great deed to admit that there is no great deed that you can do. So just go and wash. And Naaman's able to humble himself, and he does. He goes, and he dips in the Jordan seven times, and what happens? He's saved. He's washed. He's cleansed. He's made completely new. It's the easiest thing in the world. It's the hardest thing in the world. So why? It begs the question, why? Why is he able to receive that kind of grace? Why is it free? Does God have no standards? Does he not care? Does he have low standards? Well, no, he doesn't. We've just heard that so higher is standards that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. So how does Naaman get this amazing healing if all have fallen short? I'll tell you how. The great deed that Naaman thought that he could do, but he actually couldn't do, somebody else did for him. 
Jesus didn't go through a literal fire, but he did face the fire of God's justice and wrath. Jesus went to the cross where he suffered God's fiery wrath and punishment for our sins. Jesus was drowned under the ocean of God's judgment for our sins. Jesus went out to slay the dragon of Satan's sin and death on the cross and he rose victorious from the grave. And he did it for you. And he did it for me. See, here's what Elisha is saying. Lay your deadly doing down. Down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him. In him alone. Gloriously complete. The great deed that Naaman in his great folly thought he could do, Jesus has done for him and for me. That's why Naaman can just dip down into the water and rise up completely new and clean. Like we sing, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of of Jesus. And so the question for us is, brothers and sisters, have you made these two shifts? Have you made them? Do you see the radical worlds apart that religion and the gospel are? Have you made these two shifts that Naaman has made? Remember, Naaman was a good guy. Do you know what his name means? Pleasant. He was a good guy. It's Father's Day. He was a good husband. He was a good dad. He listened to his wife. He even listened to his slave girl who was the wrong gender, the wrong age, the wrong color, and the wrong race. Naaman was a good guy. But he needs a prophet to come to him and to show him it's not enough. You need to make these two shifts. Shift number one is to realize that all the money and all the power and all the connections in the world are not enough before a holy God. Shift number two is to realize that you cannot earn your relationship with God. It's not something that you achieve. It's something that you receive. And as we come to a conclusion, I love that God used a little slave girl, the weak and the despised, to save Naaman, the powerful and the strong. And you know what? If you believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, it'll make you like that little slave girl, pointing away from yourself to the prophet. All the experts and all the elite and all the professionals will just think you're a useless little slave girl wasting your time and wasting your life. The powerful and the successful and the elites and the professionals, they'll all be pointing this way. It's money, it's connections, it's power, it's prestige and you'll be like this little slave girl in the house, the least, the despised, pointing in exactly the opposite direction to the weakness And to the foolishness of the cross. But you know what? It's through the little slave girl that the Naamans of this world are saved. The weak and the despised 
Let's pray. Father, as we gather around your table today, your body broken, your blood shed, with empty hands, not to achieve but to receive, would you show us how the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength? In Jesus' name, amen.